I want to uh, invite you this morning to follow along with me as I read the word for us. You can follow along in your Bibles, Revelation chapter 21, or you can just look in the bulletins. The passage that I'm going to be reading for us is also printed there this morning. Uh, we have arrived then at the conclusion to our summer series, and I hope that this sermon isn't a surprise to you. I, I hope that you know where this series has been going, and so arriving at this particular place doesn't catch you off guard. We begin our Bibles, if you pick up our Bibles and we start on page one and we begin to read our Bibles, we begin the Bible with a place that is prepared for us. And when we read the last two chapters of the Bible, unsurprisingly, we find the exact same thing there as well, a place that has been or is being prepared for us. It is an everlasting place. It is the eternal place. It is heaven in a word, or to use the words that are found in the Isaiah passage that I read earlier and in the Revelation passage that I'm about to read for us, this is a consideration of the new heavens and the new earth. As I read this, hear the word of God and believe the word of God. This is too good not to be true. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, to the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God having the glory of God, its radiance, like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. The 
following verses go on to describe this in greater detail, in greater beauty, the dimensions of the city, the uh, emeralds, the jewels that are a part of it, describing the bride, the city of our Lord, uh, the, the church itself. I'm going to pick it up in verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Lord, give us eyes to see, ears to hear. Give us a little bit of faith to be able to trust in this word, to believe it, to own it, to pilgrimage toward it. Help us now, we pray, in the name of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, we have a lovely task before us today. I get to talk about, and we get to think about heaven. It, it is a, a lovely task, and I will tell you quite, uh, quite honestly, it is a daunting task as well. As I considered it, I was both excited about it, and I thought, what in the world am I going to be able to say about heaven? Because when we talk about heaven, we are clearly in the realm of what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, right? That's a verse that's on the front of your bulletin this morning, First uh, Corinthians 2.9. When we talk about heaven, that's what we're talking about, something that is almost unimaginably sweet, unimaginably beautiful. We have poetic glimpses that are given to us in the Word, but they're just that, right? These are prophetic in Isaiah, apocalyptic in Revelation, prophetic apocalyptic glimpses into eternal places. And therefore, we've got to keep that in mind. We've got to guard ourselves a little bit as we talk about heaven and not talk about it with, great deal of, with a great deal of specificity as if we know exactly what heaven will be be like. We need to be careful about that. We need to be careful as well about talking about hell as if we know exactly 
what hell will be like in perfect detail. And yet, that notwithstanding, the Bible invites us to contemplate. It puts these images, these poems before us and kind of calls us in, woos us to consider so that we can foster within our hearts, within our souls, the, the longings that we have for another place, the longing that we have for paradise. These words that are before serve to evoke hope within us. Memories, perhaps, of an older place that was lost and a place that will be once again given to us. These words are given to us as, as kind of a guide. We've used words, and the Bible has used words to describe us in this world as being in the wilderness, but at the same time being in the wilderness as pilgrims who are, in fact, heading towards a city. And as we get a glimpse of that city, as we get a glimpse of what it's like to be there, this becomes then for us kind of a beacon. You're heading there. And it serves then to exhort us to kind of say, if that's where you're going, then get ready. Be prepared for that place. So here's what we're considering today. What makes the heavenly Jerusalem, okay, that's a phrase from Hebrews 13 and a description of it here. What makes the heavenly Jerusalem heavenly? What makes heaven a heavenly place? That's what I want us to consider. Now, how many answers are there to that question? I, I don't know. I, if it's exceedingly great and exceedingly rich, I don't know how many answers there are to that question. I just want to suggest some that come out of the texts that are before us and then contemplate them together. Here's the first. Heaven is heavenly because heaven is home. Heaven is home, sweet home, in the truest and deepest sense. In, uh, in the book, The Wind and the Willows, Kenneth Graham opines about home, and he says he speaks of the special value of some such anchorage in one's existence. Thinking about a particular home, perhaps where you grew up, the, the, special, the special value of an anchorage like that, and that's a beautiful description. I hope that you have that, perhaps that you do, uh, and you might not recognize it until you get away from it, until you go away and you go, that's the anchorage. That's the place in this world where I was raised, the place that I love. But, of course, the reality is, if we live long enough, then the anchorages of home that we have in this world inevitably slip. Those places are lost. And, and if we lived long enough, those homes themselves wouldn't last forever. They'd actually be gone. They wouldn't just be owned by someone else. They'd actually be gone at some point. Anchorages in this world slip, but our home is in heaven, and the anchorage that we have even now of our home in heaven does not slip. Because that home, where we are and where we are going, is one that is unshakable. C.S. Lewis and Sheldon Van Alken are in dialogue together in uh, the book, A Severe Mercy. I quoted from Van Alken 
uh, last week about the, the distance measured from the cross to every other place. But as they're dialoguing together, they, they note heaven itself would be, must be, a coming home. A true coming home. And indeed, that's how it's described for us. It's home. It is a dwelling place. Will you forgive me for a moment if I, if I move from Lewis Van Alken and Kenneth Graham to a cheesy line from the end of Groundhog Day? Uh, the, the end of Groundhog Day, and I think this is the last line, let's live here. Okay? Let's live here is, is, is what he says. Lauren and I say it to each other all the time. When we get to some beautiful place and we're really enjoying it, one of us will turn to the other and say, let's live here in this place. And, and that's the idea that we've got with respect to heaven itself. You know, we, we always kind of read the Mount of Transfiguration and we listen to Peter saying, let's pitch tents here and let's live here. Why not? Let's live here where the glory of God is being revealed. And when we get to heaven, that's exactly what we're going to say. Let's live here. This is a great place to be. And you can parse almost every single word of that here, here in this eternal place that God has prepared for us. Live. I mean, what is life there? If we compared it to what life is like now, will there be any comparison? That is life indeed, to be in that place. I don't know what this will seem like compared to that life. But, but backing it up to the very first word, let's, let us. It is a place for us, and that's what the scriptures affirm. It is the dwelling place of God. Heaven is the dwelling place of God. I'm going to read for us, uh, when, I, when I sat down to finally pull together this sermon, I said to the Lord, Lord, I, I need a guide. I need a, a, a muse to guide me in thoughts of heaven. Uh, and the Lord said, use Jonathan Edwards. And I said, thank you very much. I'll use Jonathan Edwards. So unashamedly and unabashedly, uh, Edwards is much smarter and much more spiritual than I and I think his words about heaven are extraordinary. But we'll start with this one. God, indeed, with respect, and I hope this uh, sounds very familiar to you in light of this series. I hope it does so far. God, indeed, with respect to his essence, is everywhere. He fills heaven and earth. But yet he is said on some accounts, more especially, to be in some places rather than others. He was said of old to dwell in the land of Israel above all other lands and in Jerusalem above all other cities in that land and in the temple above all other houses in that city and in the holy of holies above all other apartments in that temple and on the mercy seat over the ark above all other places in the holy of holies but heaven is his dwelling place above all other places in the universe. Those places in which he was said to dwell of old were all but types of this. Heaven is a part of the creation which God has built for this end to be the place of his glorious presence. And it is his abode forever. He will dwell and gloriously manifest himself to eternity in that place. If we took a broad view of scripture and we looked at the dwelling place of God and the dwelling place of man, it would be unsurprising for us to see that in general, scripture describes the dwelling place of God as being heaven 
and the dwelling place of man as being earth. That makes sense to us. What Revelation 21 is describing is the time when that separation, when that distinction between God dwelling in heaven and man dwelling on earth, when that distinction is done away with, when the separation itself is removed to the end that earth and heaven are one. Right? That's what we sing towards the end of this is my father's world, that earth and heaven be one. And that is the picture that we get of this home that is being prepared for us. There's no place like that home. God dwells with us and we dwell with God. Heavenly, heaven is heavenly because it is home. Second, heaven is heavenly because it is a place prepared. It's prepared. That is a verse on the front of your bulletins that has guided us through the entire summer from start and now to close. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. It is a place prepared. Now, that passage right there is not the only passage wherein we find this idea of a place being prepared. We read just now Revelation 21, 2, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Heaven itself, the New Jerusalem, the church, is a place that has been prepared, Hebrews eleven sixteen. But as it is, and this is reflective of Abraham and the patriarchs pursuing another country, but as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Why? For he has prepared for them a city. It is a place that has been prepared. Jesus himself says it this way. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed. By my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. It's a place prepared. But just to listen to Jesus carefully, there are two places prepared, not one place prepared. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Preparation is involved. And 1 Corinthians, the, the, uh, the verse that I've already referenced on the front of your bulletin, the heart of man hasn't imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Now, prepare is not a strange term. It's not a strange term in Scripture. Jesus can instruct the disciples to go into the city ahead of him and prepare a place for them to stay. He can instruct them uh, before the Passover, before the, the, the final night, where he says, go and prepare the room, prepare where we're going to have the Passover. Paul can say to Philemon, prepare a room for me, get it ready. It makes sense to us. On a human level, we get it. We make preparations, right? If people are coming over to your house, especially if people are coming over to your house for an extended stay, 
you get ready for them and you can fill in the gaps there for all of the things that you do to prepare for people coming in. But what does it mean to say that God Almighty is preparing a place? What is he doing to get the place ready for us? He who can speak into existence place. What's he doing to prepare? Well, first of all, I think we just have to appreciate the metaphorical use of the language here, the parallel that's going on with this, the, the, the way that Jesus is really speaking and trying to say to us, I'm expecting you. I'm expecting you to be in this place. My father put me in charge of preparations. And I'm glad to be preparing for you. It's kind of like the, the parable of the prodigal son. And the father would say to the elder brother, hey, get things ready for the prodigals who are going to be coming in. Now, that's not exactly the way the parable of the prodigal son went. But had he said that to the elder brother in the prodigal, the, 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 the elder brother would have said, thanks very much. I don't want to be prepping anything for these people who are coming in. Shouldn't I be receiving these things? Instead, Jesus, our elder brother, says, all right, I'm on it. I've got the job. I've got the task. And I'm going to do the preparations with love, with care, with intention to detail. Jesus saying to us, listen, it has been my firm intention from the beginning and even now to prepare a place for you and to secure your place in my place. Jesus is prepping with you in mind. Now, we can think about this perhaps more theologically and, and realize that the preparation that Jesus is doing right now is the preparation of waiting. The preparation of waiting while he prepares the guests while he assembles and gathers up the guests from throughout the world and across the ages, Jesus is getting the guests ready for the place that they will inhabit. And as he's doing that, he's interceding with the Father. He goes to prepare the place by, if you will, going to the heavenly temple, the tabernacle, and spreading his blood and his body into that place and then interceding on our behalf taking our prayers and holding them up before his Father and saying, Father, listen to them as you listen to me, your son. He's preparing by protecting the church during this time of the gathering, taking the church out in the wilderness and saying, you're mine, the rest of you stay out. No enemies get into this place. And he's preparing as he, with his spirit, sanctifies us purifies us, works in us that which we will be in heaven, develops holiness in us, develops love in us. This home prepared is heavenly also because it is a world of love. Heaven is a world of love, a place of love. Hell is a world, world of hatred. It is a place of hatred. 
The book of Proverbs is helpful here. The book of Proverbs holds up for us different types of homes, different types of places. Some homes it describes as places of plenty and places of joy and places of industry and places where people are cared for and praised and loved. And it holds up another type of home as well. Homes that are characterized by strife and hatred and contentiousness. And it says very plainly, nobody wants to be in those homes. If you grew up in a home where people were fighting all the time, where your parents were fighting all the time, it impacted you, and you don't find that to be a place you want to be. Heaven is a world of love, full of love. The love of the triune God, the love of the Father and the Son and the Spirit interacting and spilling over into every part of it. Heaven is a world of love is a phrase from Edwards. It's the title of his sermon on the same thing that I'm preaching on today. Let me read you a section from it. And with respect to this, I would observe that love resides and reigns in every heart there. The heart of God is the original seat or subject of it. Divine love is in him, not as a subject, that is to say, not as something that goes to him, which it receives from another, but its original seat. Love is in God as light is in the sun. And he continues. There is no enemy of God in heaven, but all love him as his children. They are all united with one mind to breathe forth their whole souls in love to their eternal Father and to Jesus Christ, their common head. Christ loves all his saints in heaven. His love flows out to his whole church there into every individual member of it. And they all, with one heart and one soul, without any schism in the body, love their common Redeemer. Every heart is wedded to this spiritual husband. All rejoice in him, the angels concurring, and the angels and the saints all love one another. All that glorious society are sincerely united. There is no secret or open enemy among them. Not one heart but is full of love nor one person who is not beloved. As they are all lovely, so all see each other's loveliness with answerable delight. Did you hear what that just said? As, as we are all made lovely and all full of love, when we see each other's loveliness, we won't be like, oh great, there's that person again. Full, full of loveliness, making me feel like not lovely, un lovely. No, we will see each other's loveliness and we will delight in it. We'll delight in seeing that in each other. Everyone there loves every other inhabitant of heaven whom he sees and so he is mutually beloved by everyone. It is a regular occurrence for us to confess corporately and I gather individually as well that we don't love as we ought to love. That we, we don't love the Lord as we ought to love, that we don't love one another as we ought to love. Heaven 
is the place where that's undone. There'll be no more confessing that in heaven because it is a world of love and in that world we will love perfectly and beautifully. Heaven is heavenly for because it is beautiful and it is abundant. It is not an accident that the description that we find in Revelation 21 and 22 sounds a lot like the description of Eden that we find in Genesis 1 and 2. The materials that are used there, the sense of abundance that characterizes the place, both of them are beautiful and abundant. Let's say it this way. There's nothing skimpy about heaven. God's not cutting any corners. God hasn't said, you know, if I do too much, I just might spoil them. There's nothing sparse or spartan about heaven. Now, I have to just take a pause here and make sure that we understand what we're talking about with this place. I've been using the word heaven as kind of shorthand as we've moved through here. Uh, what heaven represents in full, and, and, and this is to say it a little bit more in the language of Scripture, the language of Isaiah, the language of Revelation, the terms are perhaps more fully to be said, the new heavens and the new earth, although that's a lot to say every time, so I've been just shortening it, to heaven. The importance of calling it the new heavens and the new earth is to help us to see that a place prepared for us is really a place. It's a place. It's not just an idea. It's not just an aspiration. It's not just some kind of ethereal or spiritual state of being or, or a state of mind. It's a place. It's the new earth. And the new earth is this earth. And don't, don't mistake that. The new earth is this earth. Renewed, purified, perfected, decursed. Decursed. That's what happens. That's what the blood of Christ is able to do. After you leave, one or two of the deacons will come in and decurse, abuse. <laughs> do with that what you will uh, in your mind. But in these days, just kind of spraying it down and trying to clean it up and make sure it's okay for the next person. Decursed is the world to come. We uh, referenced a couple of sermons back, Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, of course, it talks about the creation groaning. But, but hear this, the creation isn't groaning because the creation is longing for its own destruction, its own annihilation. It's just waiting to be replaced by something else. Earth is waiting to be pushed out of the way by Jupiter or something like that. Instead, the creation is groaning because it's longing for its release. It's longing for its liberation from the bondage of corruption. And Isaiah 65 or Isaiah 11 and Revelation 21, 22, they give us a picture of that, the redeemed earth, a new earth and a new heavens, and it is, they are unequivocally beautiful and lush and abundant. And we're going to see it, and we're going to appreciate it, and we are going to be overwhelmed by the abundance and overwhelmed by the beauty. What is the most beautiful place that you've been to on earth? 
Where is it? Hold it in your mind for a moment. Hold that place in your mind for just a moment. Now take that place and multiply it exponentially. Take it out and multiply it. Now, take all of the sin out of your heart in that place. Add the bursting presence of God and love into that place. And now, exponentially multiply it again. And maybe, maybe we're getting an idea of the beauty and the lushness of that place. Edwards, in that world, Wherever the inhabitants turn their eyes, they shall see nothing but beauty and glory. Wherever you turn your eyes. You won't be able to turn your eyes somewhere and go, enough of this beauty and glory, i got to look over here for a little while. Wherever you turn your eyes, or Edwards again, heaven itself, the place of habitation, is a garden of pleasures. Remember, that's the name of Eden. A heavenly paradise fitted in all respects for an abode of heavenly lovers. A place where they may have sweet society and perfect enjoyment of each other's love. We will come to this place. It'll be full of that kind of beauty and abundance, and we will love it in its proper order and its proper proportion. We won't love anything too much or anything too little. We won't love in a way we're not supposed to love. And all of our love, as much as it may be a love for a particular thing in that place, will ultimately then get directed to the one who is the source of that thing that we love. That's how perfect the love will be in that place. That's how beautiful and abundant that place will be. All right, two more quick elements on our list of what makes heaven heavenly. Fifth, it's eternal. It's eternal. Don't be confused by the temporal language that we read in Isaiah 65. That language is poetic and analogical. This is the new heavens, the new earth, heaven. This is world without end. Amen. Amen. Edwards once again. The paradise of love shall always be continued as in a perpetual spring. There shall be no autumn or winter. Every plant there shall be in perpetual bloom with the same undecaying pleasantness and fragrancy, always springing forth, always blossoming, and always bearing fruit. Do some of you hear that and say, but I love the change of seasons. I really like the change. You won't miss it. <laughs> Whatever it is, you won't miss it. Uh, right down here, kind of wafting up. You're not going to be able to smell it. And I guess in COVID days, you shouldn't come up and stick your nose in it. Uh, our lilac blossoms out of our garden. Now, for those of you who know gardening, you say, wait, aren't lilacs in May? Well, yes, they are, except for boomerang lilacs, which get another bloom on them right now, so that we've got the scent of lilacs in September in our garden right now. It's a perpetual spring in heaven. It is the eternal place. And finally, it is peaceful. It is the place of the reign of the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of peace, there will be no end. They shall beat the swords 
into plowshares. They shall not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountains, says the Lord. Animals and people will be at peace. It is the fulfillment, heaven, of the promised place of rest. Right? That's what we looked at earlier. There yet remains a promised rest for the people of God. This is it. This is the promised place of rest, and his resting place shall be glorious. The place of the new heavens and the new earth will be home. It will be prepared, full of love, beautiful, abundant, eternal, peaceful, and restful. I've got a soul exercise for you this afternoon. Take a walk, or if you don't want to take a walk, just put yourself at your desk and make a list. Make a list of what won't be in heaven. Of what not's going to be, of what is not going to be there. The scriptures do that. Isaiah 65 did it. Revelation does it as well. What won't be in heaven? Your sin. All of those thoughts. All of those actions. My sin. That won't be in heaven. Your fears, your worries, the disagreements that we have with one another, the busted relationships, the loneliness, the half-hearted worship, no sorrow, no tears, no pain, no mourning, no grief, no death, no loss, no sighing, no falls outside of church, no cancer. Make a list. And if you write it down, when you're done, tear it up. And throw it out. Because that stuff's gone. That stuff won't be in that place. Brothers and sisters, if that is the place that is set before us, then the question remains for us, what kind of people ought we to be now? Choose your biblical preference here. Seekers. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Path walkers. Jeremiah 6.16, walking the ancient paths together. Lovers. 1 John 3, little children, let us love, for God is love. Pilgrims, pick it out. Pick whichever one and others that suit. And as you choose it, remember this, that whatever you choose is your way of speaking of it. Jesus is the way. When he said, I go to prepare a place for you, the question was, how do we know the way? How do we get there? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You get to that place through me. I'm the way. To follow Jesus is to find that place. To ignore Jesus is to find the place of hatred, hell. But Jesus is our forerunner. And when we arrive, 
he will be waiting to say, enter into the place that I have prepared for you. Let your minds and hearts believe the good news. We have moved through the tragedy of paradise lost to the comedy of the cross where the worst place on earth becomes in fact the most hopeful and best place on earth. And we have concluded with the place that is described as happily ever after. And they all live happily ever after in that place. Make no mistake, there is a place for us. And I look forward to seeing you there and being with you forever. And if you can't find me, I'll be in the back row somewhere having squeaked in, uh, and you'll be up front somewhere.